um, but on everybody's. Um, but I won't go that far. But first, I would like to know who of you uh, consider yourself um, more than average, uh, um, let's say. No, first another question. You can think about this one. Who is a veterinarian? Right. So who knows more about statistics than the average veterinarian here in the room? <laughs> about half. Okay, perfect. Um, so what I put in the program is that I absolutely had no idea uh, what was going to be the person sitting in the uh, workshop. So I had no idea what to prepare. Um, so it's a little bit uh, what you wish it, which direction you wish this workshop to go where we go. So to me it's fine, so I will ask you if you think this is interesting to have some discussion about. So I don't give a presentation and in the end we have questions. I would much more prefer if we kind of uh, go along and, and hopefully all learn something. Um, so that's the aim. Um, so I have a very short introduction of two slides and then we'll look at some data. Okay? Fair enough. Um, so, thinking about evidence-based veterinary medicine, as, as uh, Sebastian said, uh, my title is Professor in Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine. I personally do not know exactly what it means, um, but I think it means I'm thinking about how to get information, but there is two sides to the whole evidence-based veterinary medicine, as I'm concerned. So, one half of the people are making the, the evidence, so we're doing research and we're hope, hoping that that leads to evidence. And um, the other side of the world is using the evidence or should be using the evidence or could be using the evidence if they could understand it or could get it or whatever are the barriers between the one group and the other group. And I'm not quite sure on what side of the line are the people in this room. So are you more towards making evidence, so research type person? Can you please raise your hands if you feel you're more on the making the evidence side, right? And so, are the other ones more on using the evidence side? And there's some indeterminance, mostly, most likely in most rooms. <laughs> or into both. Well, that's even perfect, because then you are kind of splitting yourself in two. I don't know. Anyway, then you are uh, looking on two sides of what do we need statistics for. Um, so anyway, I think this is how we try, try to train our students, or vet students as well. We teach them uh, what we call academic uh, um, uh, things like reading the literature, searching for the literature, looking at uh, praising a paper, which we say that, well, this is what you need to do. Um, but on the other hand, we train them also to how to make a research proposal, carry out some research during their studies. So we kind of teach the veterinarians the two sides of the coin. Um, so I think, in, and in both sides, statistics are important because if you're doing research, you need to use it to analyze your data. And if you're reading papers, you have to appraise what funny things other people did with their data, basically. Um, so in, in that sense, um, you need to have two, uh, two sides uh, of the coin. Um, and obviously what I want to talk about now is the randomized clinical trials. I think Inte gave a very nice introduction about lots of things that can go right and wrong in randomized clinical trials. But basically um, they are very simple in a design. I'm not saying they're simple in logistics and follow-up, but the design is very simple. Um, there should be something random and there hopefully should be something blind and we are comparing something against each other, which I call A and B. 
Um, and then in the end we have an outcome which we have thought about very carefully. It's often very difficult to define, but let's assume we have an outcome. And then, well, it's quite simple. A is better than B, or B is better than A, or there is no difference, right? That, that, so basically the, the statistical thinking around a clinical trial is not that complicated. It's, I think the devil is in the details of carrying out a clinical trial. Um, of course, we can only use them for therapy and intervention for, for obviously ethical reasons, and so we still need to do a lot of observational studies if we're talking about genetics, lifestyle, um, lifestyle being management of animals, I suppose, risk factor studies. So, um, but I will not get too much into uh, observational studies and all the confounding, confounding things. Let's assume we're talking about a clinical trial with this pretty basic design where we have to compare two groups. Right? Everybody there? That little pyramid to the right, um, I use the pyramid in a more generic way when I'm teaching. I say on the top there is evidence that is quite relevant for your patients. So clinical trial is, is very high up. At the bottom we have the fundamental sciences, the biomedical sciences, the laboratory animal sciences that basically should support uh, what's going on, what we're going to try in our uh, animals. So there should be development, fundamental biological research, biomedical research to develop new things if we're thinking about therapies and interventions. So that is what I teach the students and there should be a relation between the two. Um, and clinical trials are then the ultimate design to say, well, it also... It works maybe in my laboratory animal, but it also works in the population. So now I'll show you some results of a clinical trial, and we'll just have, let's say, a vote on if it works or not. This is the data. Just two, um, so it's two groups. It's a basic randomized clinical trial. The top one is the placebo group, and the bottom one is the intervention group. This one was carried out in pigs. Uh, the sows were randomized. They either got the placebo or they got the intervention. And each uh, stacked bar um, is the uh, litter size of that particular sow. And if the, the, the dark part that you see on top of, of most of the bars are the piglets that got diarrhea. Right? So we see a number of sows on the, on the top. Oh, I forgot the numbers off the top of my head, but it's quite a lot. Um, and at the bottom we see uh, the intervention group and we see the diarrhea. So now, not being hindered by any statistics, what would you see if you say, well, what's my clinical impression of this intervention? Maybe you should uh, kind of, or I can see votes maybe. If you want to say something, you have to say it in the microphone because <laughs> who wants to say something? This is inviting, isn't it? <laughs> so, let's take a shot at it. Being, looking at, just visually at the data, it would suggest that the intervention resulted in less diarrhea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does everybody agree with that? The visual inspection of the data suggests that there is less diarrhea. In what way is there less diarrhea? There's less dark blue on the graph. <laughs> There's less dark on the graph, yeah, true. And can you be more specific? Is there less dark per bar, or are there less bars dark, so to say? Probably both, I would say. <laughs> but it tells you nothing about significance of that change difference. No, no, I wasn't asking for significance. I was just asking, do we see uh, a difference? Uh, uh, does everybody agree in the room, even the people in the back can see um, by eyeballing the data, 
um, that there seems to be less bars with dark at the bottom, and also the bars that do have dark seem to have less dark, right? I think that's what we all see, and then your remark is, yeah, but we do not know if that's significant. Is that important? They can give answers. Who thinks it's important that it's significant? Yeah, I think it's important uh -huh. um, because there is so much random variation, and here I think there's quite a bit of clustering. So, uh, and there may be contagiousness here. I don't uh -huh. know how it was designed. So, so I think, uh, yeah, you should try to uh, exclude uh, randomness mm -hmm. uh, and do that in a formal way. Yeah. And do you think the randomness would exclude the fact that it's contagious? Um, no, but the the um, the contagiousness increases the v visual effect. So if you don't take that into account, yeah. you may uh, you, you more easily might say this is really uh, this is an effect. Where if you take properly account of it, yeah. uh, it's does everybody easy. understand the point he just make? If it's contagious, that suggests that if a first piglet gets the disease then it might spread within that particular litter and, and, and immediately lead to a lot of piglets. So it's either, it's like a zero-one game. Either, either the litter becomes and then it gets started, or maybe it doesn't get started, but then it doesn't get started at all. And that, that causes clustering, where you expect quite a lot of maybe animals with the disease in, in, in one cluster and none in the other. It's very hard to, t there's very fancy statistical models to deal with that, like um, um, threshold type models. Um, but, but do we see that this could be a problem with this data? If they're not infectious, if this was a not infectious disease, would, that, would it still need to be significant, to be important? Somebody else maybe. Yes, yes, because this is about statistics, and I think, well, actually, I have to ask you, did you mean, it's, is it significant in a statistical sense? That was your remark. I, I, that's how I understood it. Yeah, yes, the answer is yes, in a statistical way. If it's an underpowered study, mm -hmm. failure to find a significant p-value, then I, I don't know what to know about this study. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, do, so do you feel with this is the whole study. So this, this was done in a veterinary practice by a, a, a practitioner in one pig herd. So this is, this is what they could do in their own practice in one pig herd. So, so practical, very practical application. Yeah, so I'm trying to figure out whether I would do this by total number of piglets per group or whether I would do this as a binary category for diarrhea mm -hmm. per sow. Mm -hmm. And that, to yeah. me, I'm a bit confused. I don't know whether they were housed together or they were housed apart. Uh, the sows were housed in their normal, um, um, how, what do you call those? Being slightly Littering pens, and the piglets are with the sow. So this is a, a pre-weaning yeah. uh, pre so, diarrhea. So, so they can, I'm, I'm yeah. a bit unfamiliar with pigs other than my internship year where I was forced to work on them. So, I don't, it, it, so contagion can't spread is, is what you're saying. Yeah, but either it can also be non-contagious. I was just discussing, okay. does that make a difference right. for okay. our interpretation? Taking too much time, but yeah, I think no. I would probably do this per sow as a 
binary if it was contagious. Yeah, but you would want to do a statistical test on it as well. Yeah, I think so, but if I found a significant difference, that would be maybe perhaps interesting. If I didn't find a significant difference, I don't know how I would interpret that without figuring out how mm -hmm. powered this study was. Yeah. yeah. Any other ideas about whether we should do statistics on this? Apart from into saying, yes, you have to do it. Well, he's an epidemiologist. So, <laughs> so the, the term clinical importance, does that, does anybody think maybe, maybe, I see Mariska. Yeah, well, I, Mariska wants to. Yeah, sorry, apparently we have to use the mic, even if we can shout uh, okay. clearly. Um, yeah, I'm also I'm, I'm a clinical epidemiologist, so I also have a bit more background knowledge. And I'm thinking about the, the recent statement that we shouldn't use p-values. Um, but yeah, I think I would want to know clinical, uh, clinical relevance as well, and I want to know the difference, the actual difference, and I'm not sure if I would want to know the actual difference in sows with infected litters, or if I would want to know the real difference uh, in, in piglet numbers. Mm -hmm. But I also would want to know the effect size and not only whether it's significant or not. Yes, but can you see the effect size? So, so Mariska says we should use the look at the effect size. It is, is it is, if it would be significant, is it then important? Because if I have big, big, big data set and I'm looking at a tiny difference, it will become statistically significantly different, right? So Intuit is big, big, big herd, so you can easily find the difference between two groups. Even if the difference is in reality really very small, maybe not clinically relevant. So there we say this is, this is clinically relevant. Are there any big, um, I don't dare to say. big practitioners in the room by chance? No. Neither am I a big practitioner, so. But you can imagine that that is, uh, from a clinical point of view, quite important to, to first look at the data and see are they at all clinically relevant, right? And I think that's a, a step that we maybe, maybe sometimes forget and go straight into statistical uh, hypothesis testing uh, where clinical relevance might be also an important aspect of before we think about it. Any more points about looking at the data? And um, one of our statisticians uh, in the department, um, he says, well, if you don't see the difference, you don't have to go do any tests. So what do we think about that? <laughs> Jan van der Broek, just so for the people who know. Who has a comment on that? Because we do see a difference, right? So in, in, his, in his world view, we, we, we should continue now with doing statistical tests because we do see a difference. <laughs> it's probably a fair point because in clinical practice, you're looking for significant changes. So if the difference is like 2% difference, which is statistically significant but not clinically significant, then that could be a massive expense for a farmer that's not going to translate to a real-world effect for him mm -hmm. necessarily. Yeah. Any other thoughts about this? clinical uh, look at data? Just, I think there's also, because this is farm animal cost benefit, so how much does that intervention cost mm -hmm. versus how much is it costing that farmer for diarrhea? Um, mm -hmm. not, not quite as critical in a small animal in the same way, but certainly critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another point. Yeah. Well, I think 
Yes, the, the, <coughs> I think there is a point of saying, well, if obviously if they look pretty much identical, that maybe we just don't need to go any farther with that. But also it depends, I think, on what you're trying to achieve with your study. So if you're actually trying to account for other factors and it's just not just looking, you know, just two variables, but you have multiple variables you want to account for confounding factors and things like that. Maybe a difference would not be immediately obvious on, on your data, but maybe you need some stats to confirm, you know, the effect of confoundings. I mean, that would be my experience. You might disagree. Does anybody have experience with a trial that you did or observational study where you, s you saw no difference and only after correcting for confounding it, it, it showed up, importantly? Yeah, Intim probably had some. I've never had it, uh, so I, I see your point. It's yeah, just for the, for the sake of argument, I, wouldn't, uh, I couldn't disagree more with your statistician, um, <laughs> especially in the case of contagious diseases where we deal with a lot, right? This could be contagious. Mm -hmm. If you do like within one farrowing compartment, if you do a randomized per crate, um, then the, uh, the treated ones uh, actually have very high exposure because of the non-treated ones, mm -hmm. eh, if mm -hmm. they're in the same area. And the other way around is for the, the, the placebo ones, they are sort of protected by the treated ones. So yeah. the true effect is actually much smaller than the observed effect. So you may, have an, you may have the data that don't show too much, whereas the yeah. real effect, if you control for exposure, is actually double or more than that yeah. uh, if you correctly analyze the data. So, yeah. so there is absolutely, particularly, I think, in clustering contagious things, yeah. there may be much more underneath than what you ever see in simple descriptive data. Yeah. Yeah, so he's saying if, if, if disease is contagious, then, then when we are intervening in transmission in a farm in half the group and not in the other half the group, then the group there we, where we intervene in, they're still not protected because the other half is not intervened against, where on the other hand, the group that has no intervention is basically protected by the other half where there is an intervention. Eh? So this is a, a big problem when you do uh, randomized clinical trials uh, in infectious disease uh, situations in farm animals because they are in the same population and the transmission dynamics are influenced by your half intervention, say. If we're looking at companion animals where they are not clustered, where each individual is an independent, uh, well, really an independent individual in terms of transmission of all the others, I think it's much easier to kind of, at face value, look at the two groups and say, well, they're independent. They're not influencing each other in terms of getting the disease, getting it transmitted to them. So uh, one of the learning points here already is it's very important to know whether this is in fact a contagious disease or not, the way we look at the data. And um, I'm, I'm, in farm animals, we, we deal with both. And, and uh, previously, we would think that doing a randomized clinical trial uh, with both would be similarly easy. Um, but it's not, because they are clustered and they're influencing each other. In, Individually kept animals, we can still do pretty basic randomized clinical trial on infectious diseases. So in human medicine, they do all these randomized clinical trials for preventive vaccination. They're not correcting for any clustering because there is no clustering. Right? So clustering is an important thing. Now in horse medicine, obviously horses are uh, a little bit in between species. Some of them are really kept um, maybe pretty individually, where others are kept in big clusters. So there it becomes more complicated. And this is one of the reasons why often you see very complicated stat statistics, basically, because, because things are influencing each other and you have to correct for that. So I think that's quite a lot of points you already kind of um, discussed based on this particular um, 
uh, data, uh, which were carried out in a fairly standard way within one herd. I'll just show you the, uh, the flow diagram. Or did anybody else have something to remark on, on this still? Yeah, please, sorry. I don't, I don't think that's true about companion animal disease because when they do vaccine challenges, they're in dog colonies. And there was just a recent systematic review by one of the Bordetella researchers saying that much of what they've known so far actually is completely confounded by what he calls the pen effect, which sounds exactly, sorry, I'm supposed to be using this, sounds exactly what you're talking about. So. <laughs> Um, we don't do field challenges of our vaccines. They're done in very similar settings as this was done. So Right. Yeah. Um, yes, maybe I should um, explain it. If, the, if we are doing a trial in the patients as they come to you, as individually kept animals, then you can deal with it. If you do a trial in a, a colony or um, um, what do they call them, charity homes or whatever you call that, where you put lots of dogs or a kennel when people go on holidays and things like that, of course, then you have exactly the same clustering problem, um, which, which maybe they're not very much aware of uh, the small animal or the companion animal people because they're not so used to working with clusters maybe. Okay, but I saw another hand somewhere. Yes, here, an equine. Yeah. I, we have an equine specialist. Yeah, but I'm going to talk Good. about pigs for a minute. Um, I was going to oh, talk please. more about the data presentation here and actually say that perhaps it's not the appropriate way to present this data in the first place. And maybe if you are presenting proportions, which these are, then you could have done a proportion with a confidence interval around it. And mm -hmm. looking at overlapping confidence intervals might have been an indication as to whether then it is appropriate to go on, not just based on a visual inspection, but also a, a slight statistical interpretation of confidence mm -hmm. intervals and that might have been more appropriate. Yeah, this is just the, what I would call, and which I think is, is lacking in many, many papers, the descriptive results. It's not interpreting anything. It's just showing this is what we did, and this is what we got out. So in terms of what Inti was saying, sharing the rough data, this is the rough data in, in numerical sense. Of course, it doesn't show which piglet was kind of half dead and which one was still uh, jumping around. But, but I mean, it, it tells you at least the way they counted it, this is what they got out of it. So I call that descriptive statistics, and I hate it when they're not in a paper. I do review quite a lot of papers, and I just plain hate it. And I always tell us, please show me the data so I can at least... Well, I, I, I do agree with our statistician. I like to look at the data first before I start doing... Uh, all kinds of uh, um, analytical things or calculating even confidence limits. I agree that could have been added quite easily here somehow, but that's already interpreting, more or less. Yeah. I saw another hand somewhere before we move on. Yeah. Not sure if it's already been addressed or not, but I guess the other comment I just thought of is that you could look at that and say straight away that it's not normally distributed data necessarily because it's a visual histogram. So that might then influence how you interpret the statistics that come later on after that, come, after that graph. Yes, perfectly. Yeah, that's a very good point. So what do you think would be an outcome parameter? The way it's now counted here, it's just a count, right? We count piglets with and we count. So it's not normally distributed. It's also not a, a continuous variable in any which way, right? So it wouldn't be normally distributed. It shouldn't be. Yeah, that's, right? That's so, so that is a point. So what type of data do I have? This is important. Um, and they chose to present the overall results in a, in a count way. Yeah. Any more remarks on this? Oh, Sebastian. <laughs> From a clinical point of view, people usually used to look at other factors as well or other outcomes like uh, weight gain or survival rates mm -hmm. and so on. So often too many. 
And another interesting question would be, what is the intervention? If it's a third generation antibiotics, I, th I think we would have a different view on the, if, if, if the treatment makes sense or not. What do you mean a different view on whether it makes sense? So, if it so would be the same numbers, but it would be a third generation antibiotics? Yeah, because of prudent use, antibiotic stewardship, okay. and so this, okay. this issue. But that the issue is should we have done the study to begin with then? Is, is that your issue? No, the, the, the difference between the groups depends a bit on the severeness or, or, or um, side effects, other dangers, re resistance, problematics. And so if we have a little difference between the groups, mm -hmm. so not, not in a statistical way, but in a clinical way. In and, clinical and impact, yeah. yes, yes. So we would have another view, a different view on things. Statistically speaking or interpreting the results? Clinically speaking, and okay. interpreting the things. That's a very interesting point he's raising here, right? So was it ethical to do the study to begin with in terms of how we now understand that you might not wish to use third-generation antibiotics in pigs, and maybe these were third-generation antibiotics? Um, but I think that doesn't change from how you present your results and how you statistically analyze them. But, of course, it comes to the interpretation of, well, should we do this, even if the evidence is there, that it might work, um, but maybe we still don't want to do it for, for various other reasons. Yeah, I find that a hard one, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Anything else on... Um, so this is what I call descriptive statistics. It gives me quite an, quite an impression of what was going on with uh, this particular uh, data. Okay, uh, just to show you that they did it properly... There, there was a flow diagram from how many sows were randomized, and, and some, I, I don't think some jumped. Well, some did not receive the uh, allocated thing, so they were left because so they were not, well, actually, they all did receive it. Some piglets were lost to follow up. I was quite shocked by the number, actually. Um, actually, I cannot read this one, sorry, I have to turn around as well. Non-viability were crushed by sow. Yeah, this is uh, farm animal medicine for you. Um, one sow didn't have piglets in the end. So, so, but I mean, it's clear what happened, right? So many sows, so many were randomized, and so many piglets were lost. And, and so it's... Um, thank you, Inter. Bye. Um, so in the end, we see that on the one, uh, uh, was 26 sows to be analyzed on the on the one hand, and there were 24 sows on the other hand, with no, one door further. <laughs> so around 260 piglets per, uh, per group, per intervention. Um, which brings me to the question, uh, which was already posed, how to analyze the difference. And I think quite a lot of the things were already mentioned. Um, so the primary outcome was diarrhea in the piglets, is what they said. And so should we analyze it um, in terms of the number, the way they presented, or should we choose for a continuous variable, time of onset of the diarrhea? Maybe that is more important, time of onset within the litter. Um, duration of the diarrhea could be another thing. Um, well, mortality. There was n nothing said about mortality here. Um, and then, of course, transmission within the litter. We discussed that already. That might influence, of course, um, 
maybe, maybe we say, well, if it starts, then the intervention should reduce transmission, which is a totally different goal from the total number if it were independent, right? So there's many ways of, of analyzing. Could you think of anything else? These were the most obvious ones when I, when I looked at it. Creative. <laughs> Could you look at final slaughter weight and see if there's a difference? Okay, some production characteristic. These were pre-weaning piglets, um, so they were still with the sow lactating. Okay, then so they get weaned, and then, then so they look, get look mixed. at weaning weights or weaning size and things. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, could that? Yeah, which is maybe indirect and influenced by a lot of other things, right? Um, so, I. Maybe they also coughed a lot, and maybe that was different between the groups, blah, blah. So I, I generally say if you do a randomized clinical trial, your primary outcome should be as close, physiologically speaking, to your intervention as possible. And like indirect measures are often very easy to collect because they are collected on a farm quite often. Now, in, in companion animals and horses, maybe you really can think about your primary outcomes very cleverly because you, you will have to do it anyway yourself. So you might as well define a very good one. And in farm animals, we often use indirect measurements. But I, I always propose that your primary outcome should be so as close as possible to the expected effect of your intervention, the process it's intervening on. And here the question was, there was too much diarrhea in the piglets on that farm. Yeah. Right, so that is something about primary outcome, um, of course, is, um, is a thing. Now, I have a, a, a little bit of, um, when we would do the statistics in the most simple way as a vet student would start, right? I just imagine now that, that I'm a vet student, I've done this, it's my little research project, and I want to analyze this. And um, obviously, the numbers are the easiest one to go. Um, now we're getting to the p-values. So I would simply first look at the proportion of piglets with diarrhea in the one group and the proportion of piglets without, with diarrhea in the other group. Right? So these are the numbers. So it's 3.8% in the one group, in the intervention group, and it is 23.8% in the non-intervention group. Do we think that's clinically important? Could be, could not be, depends whether they grow afterwards or whether they die or what, but it could be, right? Depends on the... If we're thinking of an animal welfare point of view, let's say they suffer a lot from this. I'm thinking of the patient values, the guy sitting right there in front of me. So what would be the patient value impression of you, of having diarrhea as a piglet? I can't speak personally, but... Um, no, you're not a piglet, that's clear, but... <laughs> um, it, it, well, it, depends. it depends on, do animals suffer when they have diarrhea? Mm -hmm. Who knows? I don't know. If it were a dog, would you think it would suffer? Probably not. Okay. It depends. Like, you know, some diarrhea, from personal experience, is painful, some of it isn't. Yeah. In which, in which case, yeah. possibly. 
But anyway, if you, you think, uh, I never thought about patient values much until your presentation this morning, so thank you for that. But we, you could even think if it was painful, or maybe they don't wish to eat that day, or they, they are just, you know, looking like non-happy little piglets, maybe we should weigh in that more and say, well, if, if we can, can reduce that a lot, then this is an important outcome. Um, yeah, so what statistical tool would we do when we do this type of data? Proportions, comparing proportions. What we teach the students, comparing proportions, you do a chi-square test and then you, you have a test and when you're a bit more fancy, you do a logistic regression, right? And which gives you exactly the same answer. You just say the two groups. Um, so I did that and now we go into the p-value stuff, of course. So I do a chi-square test and that tells me um, so I, that, that I even did it in Excel, which I tell my students never ever to do any statistics in Excel because you know it's just a horrible system to do statistics in. You have no track of your what you did. Uh, you, you you mess up your data, and so there's uh, horrible things. But for the sake of uh, just having that discussion point, I did it. And um, you, you calculate the expected value and then it can calculate. But of course, obviously, the learning point here is never do statistics in Excel. But you're all experienced researchers. So, um, And then the p-value is um, artificially or uh, totally, uh, well, I decide that uh, 0 0.05 is uh, my, uh, <laughs> my cutoff. And then this is utterly significant, right? So now you have your answer. It's significant. Are you happy? Oh, he's happy. Who is not happy? <laughs> I made lots of people unhappy. Good. I'm unhappy. You were? Oh, I thought you said I was not happy. Okay. Why? Yes. Because you've done it at the piglet level instead of not consider that they're clustered within a cell. Mm -hmm. Does everybody get the, the point? The way I did this test, and this is how all my students do this when they approach this thing the first time, is they think I have independent observations. As we have just discussed before, they're totally not independent because they're clustered within sow. They have lots of environmental factors that are the same within each litter and different between the litters, so they are absolutely not independent, even regardless if it was not infectious. They are not independent uh, observations. So this is, uh, statistically speaking, conceptually speaking, wrong. And this is something that we should understand. It doesn't matter that you do not maybe know exactly what to do next, but you should realize that uh, piglets within a litter are more equal to each other than piglets between litters. And I think all of you uh, know this, but I, I, would, I, I still think this is a nice data set to go through a few of those uh, things. So this is wrong, so not happy. Right? So what, what can we do to improve this a little bit? You, you still had a question, I think. No? no? Oh, okay. I totally agree that I want to do it. Each, each cell is a single diarrhea event. Okay. Does everybody agree that's a good idea to, to say, well, not every piglet is uh, independent. Let's do it at sow level. No? I don't see any naysayers. So that's what I did. I looked at the proportion of litters with and without diarrhea, which we can count them as well, it's still proportions. Um, and then uh, in the intervention group, we have 29% of the litters, or 30%, let's say, that have diarrhea, 
And in the placebo group, we have 60, 60 plus percent of the cells with where in that litter is diarrhea. So is this clinically important? Now I'm looking at the cell level. That's what you asked me to do. So clinically speaking, we have the number of cells that have a litter with diarrhea from 60% to 30%. Do we need to do statistics or not? I just open question. I think you're losing some power, in my opinion, um, because if you've got one piglet in a sow group, whatever you want to say, that has diarrhea, that's very different from every piglet in the group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so his remark is the sows are not compared um, um, fairly, because some, well, we, did, we saw the data, there's actually no litters where all of them did get diarrhea, but you say, well, some sows are, well, they're not equal, uh, they have uh, a litter with more diarrhea and with less diarrhea, and I all call it diarrhea. That's your point, I think. Okay. I, mine's slightly linked to that. I was wondering that we're less missing any, va any information about severity, and mm -hmm. that if we did diarrhea days per sow, then that, that might mm -hmm. give us a better idea of how many were affected, well, how many were infected, connected to that sow, and how severe it was. But I hesitate in this audience because I'm not a large animal clinician or a statistician. No, no, but, but, but this is about conceptually thinking about what, what do I wish to show with my data. So your suggestion is kind of cumulative number for each sow, like adding up the number of piglets times the diet. Di um, well, you just want to give a different number to each sow, right? Because the number should be let's say three piglets times two days is six, and another sow has two piglets times one day is two. Sorry, it, it, is, it is different, because if, uh, if all the ones that are treated only had diarrhea for a day, mm -hmm. then that's clinically very different to yeah. all, the, all of the ones that were untreated having diarrhea for six days. Too. So as a clinician, I think it's very different. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice suggestion. I didn't work that one out at beforehand, but I like it. So, um, but then you would not make it a yes-no question because you would make it some sort of a... Um, it's not continuous because there's still whole piglets times whole days, so it's, it's still... Uh, um, yeah, but it's numerically... There can only be whole numbers, right? So, so it's still, statistically speaking, a, a bit. But that would be another option to uh, define your outcome, your primary outcome, which you... Um, those of you that have done clinical trials, you should always upfront define what is going to be your primary outcome because that's what you do your power calculation on. So you say, well, this is my primary outcome. I expect a, a reduction of so much in terms of piglet days with diarrhea per cell. If that will be your primary outcome, and then you have to have an idea. Yeah, that would have been a an, an, an doable. Uh, other way of presenting it. Yeah. Also, so I did analyze this as a, as a, as a litter, and again, um, it was significant, right? P value is still below our uh, threshold, or important 0 0.05 threshold. It's getting closer, though. Um, but anyway, so this is another way looking at exactly the same data, just doing another type of analysis, which we maybe feel that's a bit more correct in terms of the clustering. 
No? Yes? <laughs> I think it is. At least it was randomized at that level. And I always tell my students, if, if you're analyzing a, a randomized clinical trial, you should actually think very carefully about the level of randomization and thereby also the level of analysis. And this was randomized at the sow level. So my power is basically sows that I included. And the fact that they have many litter, uh, big, many piglets, is just uh, meaning that I can estimate the effect a little bit more precise per sow, but it's not giving me more power. So, so in that sense, this would be the more correct uh, interpretation of the randomized clinical trial, I think. Disagreement? Agreement? But would you choose to present it like this, or would you present it with confidence, as I'm obsessed with confidence intervals, but I am slightly, mm -hmm. or, so, or would you present it with confidence intervals which are potentially more clinically interpretable? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree that, uh, this is one of my last slides that I like, but uh, you can do statistical uh, hypothesis testing with a confidence interval as well as with a p-value, but it gives you additional information. But uh, I chose to, to, to start from p-values because... Um, well, outside of the um, epidemiological journals, I find that the clinical journals still want p-values. I don't know, and they also want a mean and a standard error of the mean in their graphs. I, it beats me why they wish that, but that is what they are used to presenting. So they want a p-value. Which, which maybe, hopefully, we in the end say, well, it's just a way of looking at it. Anyway, so that's why I chose to go for the p-value approach, because I thought there might be clinicians that look, that look at clinical journals and try to see what they actually did with their data. Yeah. Um, more or less, maybe a bit more nuanced would be the proportion of piglets, but then corrected for so, right? Um, and that's what they did. So they did this modeling uh, that Inter was alluding to, that you can do models where you can correct. So you still use the piglet as an observational unit, but you correct for the fact that some are coming from the same litter. So this is standard fare, so to say, in epidemiology dealing with cluster data. But uh, the simple way still, if you look at the randomization level and analyze at the randomization level, you're not doing much wrong. This is the thing if you're doing it in your own practice. Then you're still not very far off, right? So they did it the proper way, and it was still significant. So there, there was still a difference between the two groups. Right? So that's modeled in the paper. And, and this is why we often see these, these little bit more fancy models, even with a simple question like this. Uh, we do want to take our measurements at the level of piglet but we do want to account for the, for the clustering. And, and luckily, there are statistical methods to do this. So this is how I kind of look at it. And, and when we take the students along to going towards more complicated models, um, which they don't necessarily have to do themselves, but they, they read them in the papers. When they're reading and appraising papers, they should understand why these type of models are presented. Right? And so they have to have a feeling for this, uh, this clustering. So anyway, um, it's significant. That, and we thought it, was, it could be clinically relevant, right? Um, I also looked at some continuous variables because we have all the data, we collected a lot, and, and the tendency of people is to start to compare everything. 
Who didn't ever do that? I mean, who did that? <laughs> I have data, I have many variables. It's very nice to compare the two groups at uh, many different variables. Anyway, I don't have results for that, but we reported them and they also tested them. It's maybe not very readable. They reported when the days when it occurred. So actually you could kind of calculate your number of piglets per day. And they also looked at the duration at the bottom. And they did test the duration. Yeah. And um, the duration was 1.3 days or one point eight, six days on a piglet level corrected for a cluster. And that was not significant, but they did test it. And the only point that I'm making here, when you're doing clinical trial and you're going to test a lot of things, um, is it important? Anyway, there was no power maybe or no difference. So this is a rather small trial. And now they, if you, if you think animals have diarrhea one and a half day or uh, two days, maybe that is clinically important, but it's not statistically different here. But you as a clinician might be very interested in reducing the length of the diarrhea time. Then that type of information is important, and the fact that it's not significant might maybe not be important, right? It just depends on what your question is when you're uh, appraising the literature and looking at this paper. Um, so that's the point... I want to make, um, if, you, if you see in your data a, a big, let's say, clinical difference and it's not significant, that, that could be a power problem. And this study is not that big, right? So we are all happy with all the statistical differences, and, um, but basically that's, uh, it, it was not very powerful to begin with. Um, so does it matter that we do all these different approaches? So they looked at a lot of, actually they looked at two major outputs, which were the ones that I made bright. Proportion of pictures with and without corrected for litter and the duration, where the one was significant and the other one wasn't, right? But theoretically we could have tested all of them and that's also always that I'm sure you're all aware of, but we still do it. We are, we are getting into our data until we get out, particularly in observational studies. I would say in randomized clinical trials not, but in observational studies, people, they test and they test and they test without having an hypothesis because it's an observational study. Maybe you're just getting in a feeling, hypothesis generating data study. Anyway, multiple testing is something that I do not like. Now, maybe you disagree, but I do not like it. So if you do observational study to generate an hypothesis, I think you should not do any statistical testing. You should just let the differences speak for themselves because you're looking at relations and looking at important associations. And there's no point in testing them because you didn't have an hypothesis to begin with. Now, maybe people totally disagree with me. Certainly the reviewers totally disagree with me. If I do a simulation study, this is even nicer. Simulation study, I simulate a situation, two scenarios, and then I say, well, this scenario really has an impact. It shows much less uh, um, impact of a foot-to-mouth disease. In, uh, in, in, let's say we simulate foot-to-mouth disease coming into the Netherlands, and then we do some scenarios and say, well, in this case, the epidemic is 50 hertz, and in this case, it's 500 hertz. And then the reviewers ask me, can you test that? 
So yes, I can test it, but I can run as many simulations as I wish until I get its significance. So what's the point? Right? This is just something that I think we should be aware of, that we often do testing because we're used to doing testing because we have the numbers, we have the software. That's just test and say it's significant and that, that stops the discussion. Anyway, you want to stop the discussion almost. I'm almost finished. Yeah? <laughs> Five minutes. Anybody wants to remark on that? Has had the same experience when they put in papers? Um. On one hand, I'm on your side. On the other hand, I'm on the opposite side. I guess it depends on the study protocol we are talking about. Mm -hmm. So if this is a study, let us say, to, to uh, uh, introduce a drug uh, uh, to write um, uh, a booklet for EMA and the pharmaceutical company wants to serve it, then of course we have to be very, very precise in statistical testing. And if the pharmaceutical company says, I want to uh, be uh, related to several aspects, then of course uh, 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 multiple testing is, is especially important and it's necessary. Mm -hmm. If I am on a, on a side that I say, I try to develop a drug and I have no clue what the direction is, then of course that is more or less an explorative study and then multiple testing is not necessary. So yep. it's strictly a matter of the protocol and of the real purpose of the study. And yep. so from that point of view to say, because you say I'm not in, I'm, I'm not in, in uh, directly related to my multiple testing, it depends on. So on one hand I'm on your side, on the other side I'm, I'm the opposite. Yeah. And if you do multiple tests, do you correct for the fact that you do multiple testing? Yeah, because in power calculations, that's often not taken into account. Yeah, I try to do this. Of yeah, course, okay. uh, we run... So this effect, of course, is really enormous. So usually you will not run in trouble with sample size. But yeah. if you have, um, say, a new development and we are talking on only some percent uh, uh, difference, which is... Mm -hmm really within the choice of Delta, a good proposal, then of course you run in trouble with the sample size and then you have to negotiate what is, what is, your, yeah, what is your final choice for the protocol. Yeah. yeah, so it's a bit more nuanced than I put it here, but that was for the sake of discussion. Anything else, anybody else on multiple testing or non-testing? Still want to make a comment? Okay. Then uh, what was this perfect intervention? We all agree now that it, it made a difference, right? I think. This is about being non-value free in science. And it really got me thinking about um, if we believe that a randomized clinical trial is the ultimate study design, why do I tend not to believe this one? Because deep in my heart, I, I think it's, a, it's an error. But maybe you have different feelings. But it really got me thinking about all our statistics and all our data analysis and all our things. And I was involved in the setting up of this trial. So that's why it was carried out properly. Um, and to my utter surprise, these were the results. I can be quite honest about that. So, um, but it really gets you thinking. If, if we think randomized trial is the thing to do and, 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 and then there is no biological basis for, for the intervention, how can I believe the clinical trial to be true? And if this would be, an, an, let's say, biomedicine 
supported intervention, we would be very happy with this particular stuff. Maybe not if it was third generation antibiotics, but... Okay, the placebo was nothing, right? Just to make it clear. Mariska? Even if it would be a, a medically recognized treatment, I think I would have a few other questions. Like, what did you do with the piglets that were that died? Did you take them into account in the analysis, or did you just ignore them? I think I, I think you analysis. cannot do otherwise than ignore uh -huh. them. Uh -huh. Was the was the um, the randomization or the allocation? Was it blindness? Was the, uh, were the um, the the people taking care of the pigs were they blinded? Uh -huh. Were the outcome assessors blinded? Yes. These are all things that I would want to know, especially if I know that these are people believing in, uh, in homeopathy. But I must say that I'm completely biased against homeopathy. So that mm -hmm. oh, neither am I, but I was still <laughs> surprised. <laughs> anyway, uh, so these were good questions. Uh, I, um, I think they took all the, um, the piglets that died, they took out of the analysis, so that was clear. And the, all the other things were, it was blinded, it was... It was um, Randomized properly, it was yeah, it was carried out properly. Yeah. Anyway, anybody else um, like a kind of a shock reaction? Who did not have a shock reaction? Okay, two people. Most people thought, huh, or not? I think we're all tired, getting ready for uh, the big event. You want to remark on uh, the butt? I'm not a statistician. I'm just, as a friend of mine here says, a, a normal person, a GP. But um, I think I'm not shocked because John Ioannidis has written a very good paper, which I'm sure many people here have read, which is called Why Most Published Research is Wrong. So I'm no more or less likely to believe this paper than I am more or less likely to believe a paper from... Um, let me pick on Marco, an uh, equine internal medicine person who believes strongly in science-based medicine. I think we yeah. have to replicate, but not to the point of, you know, we, you know, we try to replicate findings, and if we can't do it one or two times, or we get a very different, a very heterogeneous effect, then maybe I'm prepared not to believe it. But mm -hmm. um, there's lots of stuff out there that, you know, just due to chance... So yeah. you have a 0 0.02, you have a 2% yeah. chance that this yeah. could have just been a fluke. Yeah. I suppose that links closely to what I was going to say, which is that that's why in medicine with the meta-analyses, there are lots more surprises come out of that, that there are papers that will fi have findings one side or another that actually, when you look at the validity of the paper, is often reasonable. And mm -hmm. it's even more frightening from a veterinary perspective because we think that a randomised trial is fantastic evidence when actually we probably should be taking multiples before we listen. Yeah, well, anyway, I just want, it's not that I, I could have chosen a million other randomized clinical trials, right, to have this discussion, but, but to me it really shocked me a bit. Um, so how to think about the value of published randomized clinical trials. And the replication is the last slide I have, if that's okay. So replication then would be the answer. So if we would do this 10 times in different herds and things, and if we would find 10 times that it would be uh, on the same side of the coin, then we would tend to start to believe it. And, and this is a slide that's not in veterinary medicine. Um, it's a bit of a bit full slide. This is something that was published in 
science, and this is in the field of psychology, where they really replicated studies that were published. It, it was a multi-effort uh, all over the world. All kinds, all, all psychology groups did some studies, so they did the same studies again. And what you see on this particular slide is the um, original effect size is, is on the x-axis, and the replicated effect size is on the y-axis. Um, and, of course, if the replicated effect size would be the same as the original, it would be totally on the straight line. And then if they were similar, they turned them green. So, they, so the replicated study um, was more or less, again, significant. The red ones are the replicated studies. They end up on the no effect. So basically, the studies that were reported had shown an effect size where the replication did not. You can see there's quite a lot of red dots there. It's just, of course, this is very safe. This is psychology where they never replicate, blah, blah, blah. But I think um, it's a message that we should all take into account that generally, if something turns out significant, it is published, particularly if we think there is some valid reason to believe that these results are true. And that's the end of the story. Nobody discusses that it might be a type 1 error because we believe that this new medicine actually should work. And yes, indeed, our study shows it does work. And so, end of story. Huh? Finished. Um, where we must be a bit more critical, I think, that um, and replication studies now can be published more easily. Before, they would say, well, it's not new. Somebody else did this already. Why are you doing this again? But I think it's very important to show interventions in different populations. And I think we're quite far from that still in veterinary medicine. But I would argue that we should all try, and if things have come on the market that in each type of population, we should try if it really works as well. So that was one of the other points that I thought I should make. So my take-home message, yes, okay. Um, I still think we should think about our biological hypothesis and clinical relevance maybe even more when we, when we do field studies or things that are relevant for, for clinical practice uh, and statistical hypothesis uh, testing. Uh, it's just a tool that we need, and we, I think we do need it, and we do need these complicated models, but we should always be aware of the first point. Um, generally, if you're not an experienced statistician, which is fine, but talk to the statistician. I always do that because, I, I mean, I understand statistics, but I'm not a statistician, so I talk to them. Of course, you have fun when you do it, I think. Um, and the point of confidence intervals, I didn't want to get into it. I prefer to report studies and do hypothesis testing by confidence intervals rather than p-values. But I'm just aware that the clinical journals do not agree with me there. Um, so I think part of the message is that you can do hypothesis tests with confidence intervals as well. And it gives you also a measure of the precision of your results, which I like much more than just the p-value. Um, so that was um, basically the points that I thought we should discuss, which we actually did discuss, I think. Um, um, so the truth behind the numbers is just, well, use them wisely. <laughs> and, uh, and when you read papers, uh, look at them wisely and make your own interpretation, regardless what, of the statistics that the authors did, because they might have been forced by the reviewers or they might have done the wrong thing anyway. So 
please, and always when you read things, ask for the, the, the underlying data so you can make your own opinion. So, right? So I would like to thank you very, very much for uh, being willing to um, discuss some uh, things about statistics with me. And um, um, this is always my end slide, so saying, looking a little bit from a distance on top of a mountain or a pyramid, whatever you wish, um, I think that's a good way of looking at statistics, just keeping a bit of your distance sometimes, not, not get into the dirty details too quickly. And uh, with that, I would like to conclude this session. Thank you again very much. Thank you.